Good morning. Wow, that's pretty hot. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, please. Or your device, but I hope you have a Bible in front of you this morning because we're going to have to move around a little bit in the Scripture and it's a little bit easier to do if you actually have a physical book, I think. I have to admit to you, I have a lot of trepidation about teaching this morning for a couple of reasons. One is that I think the concepts that we're going to talk about here are pretty significant and complex. And <clears throat> honestly, my concern is that I can't convey it adequately. I don't feel I'm equipped for this. And so I've resorted to something, and I hope you won't think I'm being flippant about this, but I'm, I'm going to use some... I, I, all of, I've had too long to prepare. I had three weeks knowing that I was going to get to speak this week and next week over this passage. And so I couldn't figure out how to do it, so I started drawing little diagrams for myself. And so ultimately I thought, gee, I'm just going to show you my crazy diagrams and these little sketches I made because they, it sort of helps me uh, to see what's going on here. My greatest fear is not for the seasoned saints here, but for younger people in the faith, and that is that these concepts about living the Christian life that we'll look at this morning are so significant that failing to apprehend those, failing to see them and understand them would leave you in a place where you can't, or you feel you can't fight the Christian fight well. You can't fight sin and, and that's the other bad part. We're going to talk about sin this morning. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, and I'm up here talking about fighting sin. It's not like I have this mastered or something at all. But it's in God's Word, and we need to look at it. it you know, sometimes it's helpful, I think, to think about why God put a particular book or letter in the Bible. Of the 66, he could have included 66,000, but he didn't. There are 66 books, and in those books you have to ask kind of why they're there. Some of them, especially in the New Testament, are a little bit more obvious, like, okay, well, he wrote a book to Rome. Well, that would be like writing a book to Christians in New York City or London or somewhere, some big capital city. Uh, he wrote a, a book, a letter to the church at Ephesus. That might be like writing Chicago or L.A. or Houston or something. This book, written to Colossians, is different, and it's written actually to a little backwater place. He didn't even know these people. Actually, if you think of Turkey, which is Asia Minor in those days, and this, this place is about 100 miles to the east of Ephesus, which is more over on the coast, and it, it used to be kind of important, but then it sort of dwindled over time, and it's really a, a small town. Just If Paul hadn't been there, he shared Christ with somebody in Ephesus, a friend of his who was from there, so he went back and he shared the gospel with these people, and they believed. However, there was a problem, and like most books, especially epistles of this sort, where there's going to be a detailed explanation, it helps to know what the problem was, and we have to sort of infer that from what we get in the Scripture here. The Scripture seems to be Paul addressing a problem in a church, and the church was, uh, the problem was something like, there was some sense in which they had misunderstood Christianity to be something that was sort of mystical, and in fact that you could get greater knowledge 
not from the scripture, but by having these mystical experiences. Not by hearing the word of God as much as by having these experiences that made you sort of more of an insider in regard to Christianity. And in an odd way, that led them to be pretty permissive in the moral area too. They didn't really... uh, They didn't really see that there was a need to uphold moral standards, or I guess we would say just obey God. And so they sort of were adrift in that area based on bad theology. Paul, hearing about that, decides to write this letter to them, and it's one of the most beautifully compact letters in the Scripture for Christology, for looking at the person of Jesus Christ. His solution Although, you'll see this week and especially next week, there are specific sins. If we don't cover yours this morning, wait till next week. Mine are all in here, and I'm not going to point them out to you. But, you know, he's going to talk about specific sins, but he does that in the light of, you really, really need to know who Christ is and what is your position in Christ. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, and I really think at this point, if you'll come up with the slides, I'm going to do this on my iPad, so we'll see. Live or die with the technology, I guess. So here we are. This is Colossians chapter 3, and let me pray for myself before we read God's Word. Father, I pray that I would be able to say those things that um, that comport with the truth of your Word, as delivered to us through your Spirit, through men. I pray that the Spirit who lives within the people here, who know Christ, would resonate with this Word and it would deepen in their hearts. I confess to you I feel completely inadequate to transmit these complex ideas, but they're so clear to you. And I pray that we would leave here, not that we have to understand them, but that we leave here obeying them. And I pray through Christ. Amen. So let me see if I can enlarge this a little bit. But I hope you'll look in your Bible. This is Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read really the first. We're going to go through the first five verses here or six verses. And then next week we're going to cover 7 through 17. But there's no point talking about don't do these sins unless we get the first part correct. Because don't do these sins for a Christian is not based on, hey, just don't do them. You know, like it would be for somebody of another religion. Hey, just don't do that. And Paul's already gone through this letter and said, that's not helpful at all. All the mystical things, all the rituals, everything you're going through, that's not helpful against what he calls the indulgence of sin. But on the contrary, he's going to do what he does here, point us to Christ. So look at his argument here. Since then, or your version may say, therefore, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then he goes on to talk about other sins. Let's see if I can use my pen here to highlight these. When you see words like, since then, sorry, since then, and words like, therefore, 
you realize that he's making an argument based on these things. And so we want to carefully follow his argument. Again, my fear is that we hear words like, you have been raised up with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And those just sound so ethereal to us, they don't have any significance for daily life. That's what I'd like to avoid this morning by looking at, we want to be good students of the Bible. And so when you come upon a passage that seems um, obscure, the right thing to do is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Don't just come up with it on your own. So as we go through this, what's, that's what I intend to do in the next 25 minutes or so. I think you could, you could look at the book of Colossians in this way. The first chapter is Paul saying, the world, in fact, the universe centers on Jesus Christ. And if you remember in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 basically say, he, everything was created by him and for him. That is significant. He's not just the fabric of the universe, he's the fabric maker of the universe. The first thing to remember and the last thing to remember as we talk about this today is that we should think of Christ. If we're thinking of Christ properly, it's going to change our conduct. So first, I think, chapter is Jesus is the center. The second thing, as a believer, you're to put Jesus as the center of your life because you have been put in union with him. So maybe me in my little dorm room in 1971, I prayed out of the four spiritual laws and I asked Jesus to come into my heart and I knew I was asking him to be my sin bearer, okay? So I knew I did that, but I didn't know everything else that happened. And what we're going to look at this morning is everything else that happened. And that's what chapter 3 is about. If you're centering your life on the person who's the center of the universe, how do you live the Christ-centered life? It isn't like falling off a log. God has led us here instead of just taking us directly to heaven so that we will learn. This is a process. This is discipline. C.S. Lewis said something to the effect of, if you think life is disappointing to you because it's supposed to really be a great time and it's not, you have it all wrong. But if you think that we're here for training so that we're being prepared for a later life, this is a pretty nice place to be. And that's exactly the attitude we're to have. He's going to tell us something so brutal as to put to death these other things. That's stark language. And he's saying that because this is important stuff for us to know. And we do it in light of wanting to live a Christ-centered life. And then I think the fourth chapter largely is examples of people they would know who live a Christ-centered life. I put this in here because, and not to pick on this sin, because this is my finger, this is, could be anybody, but to put in our minds the fact that there is this moment when we are about to sin. There is this moment of hesitation. I actually don't think it's any, uh, maybe I'm reading too much in here, I don't think it's a coincidence that that word is enter on your old typewriter. If you remember that, it was return. Here it's enter. You're entering something. If I hit the wrong key on the wrong website, I am entering something. But there is this moment, and it's, it's really recounted pretty well back in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You may remember Cain, Adam and Eve's son, was about to kill his brother Abel. And God came to him and he said, Cain, sin, he hadn't done it yet. He said, sin is crouching at your door like a beast. Its desire is for you. You must have mastery over it. 
So there's a point for us here as believers where this, this is just exemplary of a sin, but it happens to be the sin that's common for us today. It's common for every man in this room for sure that you have to resist this temptation to go down a wrong road, and that's what we're trying to avoid. That's, I think, Paul's point. So I'm going to look, first of all, he, he, so he says there in Colossians, he says, since you have been raised up, then, then set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That requires some background knowledge. And, that is, and so I'm going to flip you over to chapter 2 of Ephesians, a couple of books back, because there it, he's a little bit more explicit. Same writer, but he's a little bit more explicit about the world we live in. And then I'm going to start into those little drawings of mine, maybe to make this clear. He says here, <clears throat> this is talking about our past. If you have a bulletin, I think it's helpful. I put those in there on purpose. This is talking about your past. The first circle is who we were without Christ. This is our past. And he says, you are, were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked. And then he gives three things that, that actually were the forces influencing how they walked or lived. He says, you walked according to the course of this world. Remember that word, the world. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's later called Satan or the devil. And the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. That means we have this spirit within us, which the Bible at other times calls the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you looked at this diagrammatically, uh, don't laugh, it's the best I could do. So, you see here on the left the way we kind of like to think it. There's the North Pole, the South Pole, there's, you know, Sammy Center, that's me. We're living in this, and we think that we live in this little sphere, and that's just all there is. And those little black dots represent my sin. And I think that's all contained, but that is exactly wrong. The Bible teaches us that, no, we're actually living in two spheres. The outer sphere in the right-hand circle, you can see the earth and the center sitting in the middle of it, but there's actually another sphere. It's... The Bible doesn't paint the picture of, well, we're here in heaven's ways up there somewhere and Jesus is up there sitting somewhere and that's about where I lose the thought. But it's actually saying there is a sphere of which the earth, the physical world that we live in, is only a portion. And there's something that influences that world and we are part of that and we are sinners and sinful and I have to stop and say, we're not just broken. Everybody says these days we're broken. Yes, we are. But the brokenness is what happens to us when we sin. Sin is a thing. Sin is something we do that is contrary to the will of God. I would even say contrary to the revealed will of God. It may be doing something he said not to do, or it may be not doing something he said to do, but it is a thing we do or don't do, and it is an offense to God and he won't have it, and we can't, he can't be a part of that, and we can't be a part of him and still be living in sin, even if we're Christians. Tony Evans, whom I love so much, he says, you don't think about this, but he said, this is like when sin occurred through Adam, and it occurs through us too, it's like a nuclear device going off, and there's radiation everywhere, and that radiation is still falling from the original fall. It's everywhere. It affects everything we do. It infects everything we do. We're still damaged by it. So we don't just live in a 
little sphere like the guy on the left, which is we're in this world on the right where there's actually a physical war. And there are these three things we just looked at in Ephesians. The world, Satan, our nature, the flesh. And if you looked up those verses, I went ahead and jotted some verses that really talk about this. And I'll just say them to you. We won't have to look there. But in 1 John, it says, Love not the world or the things of the world. For the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life are not from God. They're from the world, and the world is passing away and the lust thereof. The lust of the flesh, that is sexual sin. That's putting, that's putting that first. Listen, if you think we're not living a wash in that and in our era right now, you're crazy. You're, you're, you're in a delusion. We're a wash with that stuff. It's everywhere you look. It's the biggest selling thing in the world. And so we have to realize those forces are coming against us. And then there's this personal person, this being this, who's against us entirely. He wants us to be defeated. And First Peter it says he's roaring like a roaring lion, pacing around, looking on somebody to pounce on. But it does say, resist him. You can resist him. And we're going to talk about that in a second. And then our sinful nature. That's the thing we carry with us. You know how these other two get to us? We open the door. I, I want some of that stuff to come in. I'm playing with that. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, well, that's not so bad. Well, that's a, if you think about one of Jesus' parables, he said, you know, the word is planted. This is the parable of the seed and the sower. He says the word is planted in the hearts. But some of it falls upon where there are thorns. And where there are thorns, the word won't grow up because the thorns choke them out. And then he says, when he explains it to the disciples, here are three things about thorns. He said, they are typified by the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and just the desire for other things. So there we are, we're believers, but we're attracted, we're attracted ourselves by just other things. Or we're attracted to make a lot of money and whatever that happens with that. And then... To any silly thing I think I might want, I'll, I'll go after that. It's ridiculous. But that's what ensnares us. These three things are fighting against us. However, and, and that, by the way, is what in Colossians is called the, the domain of darkness. But look at these other verses in Ephesians, if you're still there. But look at verse 4. This is what happened besides just being saved when you came to Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. If you can wrap your mind around that, that is so hard for me to understand that we're partly here and partly there. And he did that, and here's the so that. This is... You want to know what's the purpose of the whole universe? The purpose of everything that's ever happened? It's in this verse. He did this so that in the ages to come, this is God, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're his trophy room. He's going to look at us and he's going to say, oh, you know what those guys were? And look at them now. You can't believe it. This is what the grace of God does to someone. And he goes on to say, you've been saved by grace. And then verse 10, so we're now his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's a reason to go to work every day. 
God prepared things for you to do to represent him there. And you have to go in such a way that it, it reflects well on him. So this is our new situation after Christ. This is Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Sinful self, the world system, and Satan is blocked off from us to a degree. It still puts pressure on us. But we don't have to succumb to it anymore. It's not our default position. We are alive with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're seated with him. So when Paul says in Colossians, set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, it's not some vague, ambiguous word to him. He wants you to think about where Christ is right now. One of the things I think that's helpful for me, at least, in these little drawings is if I can get an image before I hit that enter button, if I can get an image in my mind of Christ seated at the right hand of God, what does that mean, he's seated at the right hand of God? Here it is. This is reality as it is from God's point of view. Christ is dominant. Notice how the world has shrunk down in this picture Christ is dominant over the universe. He's already sitting at the right hand of God. What's happening on earth is what he has left and let go to remain in the rest of the spiritual war. But he is dominant in his position. In Hebrews, I'll just look at these three things. If you want to know where Christ is and you want to get a picture in your head of what you can think of where Christ is, go to the book of Hebrews. First of all, it says in Hebrews 1.3 and I'll just highlight these a little bit. It says, He is the radiance of His glory, and He is the magnificence being made in His likeness, sustaining the universe by his, the word of His power. This is where Christ is. After achieving forgiveness of sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, the right side of God, of the supreme power. The right hand is the strong hand. It's the dominant hand. If you sat at the right hand of the king, you have co-equal power with the king. So Jesus Christ, this is talking about his authority, his power, and his dominion. You think your problems are unsolvable to the person who's sitting in that seat of power. You're not thinking straight. You think he can't help you get out of sin. You're not thinking straight. He has not just the authority, he has the power to do it. If, you can, if I can stop before I hit that button and say, Jesus, help me not go down this road. He has the authority and he has the dominion, meaning he has the stretch to do it. He can get to where you are. The, another verse that's so helpful is, in Hebrews, it says in verse 15 of, of uh, Hebrews, this is chapter 4, verse 15, he is our high priest, one who, he's not one who can't feel sympathy for our weaknesses. On the contrary, we have a high priest, Jesus, who's been tempted every way we were without sin. It would be one thing to have him sitting up there if he'd never been tempted with all this power and authority and dominion. But actually, he has been tempted in the same way we are, yet he didn't succumb. He was just as human as you are. He did not employ his deity to avoid sin. And so, it says, Then let us have confidence and approach God's throne where the grace is will receive mercy and find grace to help just when we need it. We have to keep that in our minds. When he says, think about where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he's also thinking about the priestly function of Christ. He's up there wanting to help us get through this life in a way that honors the Father. Another verse. 
it says in the same way. And now he can help those who are tempted because he himself has been tempted and suffered. Another verse in Hebrews. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives. It's safe and sure. It's behind the curtain in the heavenly temple, the inner sanctuary. The point of that is, we have an anchor for our souls. So if you went back a few crazy slides... At least three things can be said of Jesus. He's a king, he is a priest, and he's an anchor for our souls. We have all that fighting on our side. We're no longer subject to sin. We no longer have to give in. If you want a fuller explanation of this, I would refer you to two other books of Scripture. Go to Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. Same book, two different chapters. Romans 6 and Romans 8. Romans 8 explain this a lot more thoroughly than I can give it time today. But this is just to say that this is the way Paul believes that we can, this is his argument, that we can avoid sin this way. And furthermore, it says that when he appears, the second part of that verse, it says our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and when he appears, we'll appear with him in glory. It is not yet clear what we are. The other, another translation says it's not yet revealed what you are. But when Christ is revealed, you'll be revealed with him in glory. In some crazy way, this person we are, that we are truly actually living down here on the earth, but we are, we're already behind the veil, as it were. We're already living with Jesus. And someday, that real person of ours will be revealed, and we'll be revealed with him in glory. I think Paul's point there is, like the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with that chapter it kept it keeps saying they were living in this world but they were looking at something beyond this their faith was propelled because they were looking beyond this world to something else if we just go around looking at our shoes all the time and just trotting ahead then we are going to be so much more easily distracted and and perhaps succumb to sin than if we have our eyes lifted up at Christ thinking about if on my little crazy diagram here, someday when he comes back, the yellow lines are his glory. His glory is going to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And we'll be employed. We'll be digging ditches or painting and doing stuff, but we'll be doing it in his employ. And in fact, we've already started that now. And so Paul's urgent plea for us is, therefore, in verse 5 of Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, whatever remains of your earthly things, sexual, your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed, which is idolatry. Those things are not compatible with who we are in Christ now. I'll give you an illustration that some people here, as I close, are old enough to remember. So, back in the 1930s, uh, there was a king for a short period in England, King Edward VIII, and he was uh, interviewed later on when he wasn't king. I'll explain that in a minute. He was interviewed about his life, and he said, yeah, he said, you know, when I grew up with my father, who was then the king, he said, you know, he used to tell me, David, you have to remember who you are, because he was, he was, he was not a good guy. He was not a good guy. And his father was saying, you're, that's not who you are. You can't be that. You're going to be a king. You're going to be the king someday. And you have to live in that same way. He's telling that story much later because he only remained king for about a year. 
David was not a nice person. He was, you know, what would be called today a jet setter, a playboy. And when the king, when the throne came upon him, he didn't want it. He wanted to, he wanted to marry a, a divorced lady who was just not a good person either, just a terrible person, in fact. And, you know, if you read about it today, you know him as the Duke of Windsor. And it's all told about how this is a, such a beautiful love story. No, in fact, at the very time in 1936, when, when Hitler was on the ascendancy and he was about to begin his conquering of all of Europe, when the world needed England to stand up so much, King Edward VIII just gave it up. He said, no, nah, I don't want it. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care. And England paid dearly for that. Fortunately, his brother became a good king. But my point is, you can have a title and not live up to it. You and I have been given so much in Christ, and yet we shuffle along without thinking about who we are. As we look next week at the specific sins, don't forget this part. Because this is the motivation for how we are to overcome those sins. So, if you would, pray with me now. Father, we see this. We know that because of what Christ did, we have this position. Honestly, tomorrow when I'm angry at work or when somebody pulls out in front of me or I'm tempted to look at something I'm not supposed to, it is so hard for me to grasp these things and keep them in the forefront of my mind. I think, however, that's the work of your Holy Spirit. I do know that the more I stay in your word, the more I stay in Scripture, the more accessible this is to me, the more I'm able to fight. I thank you that all these, all these imperatives that are given are given plurally. I think you mean for us to be in this fight together. These are all for all of us. We don't fight as individuals, we fight as a unit. And I pray for us here at Grace Bible Church that we'd encourage one another to live in such a way that would reflect well on Christ, that would draw us toward the things we are doing and supposed to do and away from the things we are not supposed to do. Don't, and help us not just shuffle along here with our heads down, not looking up at the throne where Christ sits now. So we pray in his name. Amen.